if we no longer have a sin nature, why do we still sin? The language is problematic. We no longer have a sin nature. Actually, the old man has been, you know, put to death is the way scripture says it. And, but it doesn't mean that sin has been eradicated from our existence. And Paul discusses this at length in Romans 7, where he talks about his own struggle with the remaining sin. And he goes all the way into Romans 8 saying, basically, we're waiting for the return of Christ and the end of the world when we'll be glorified and ultimately liberated from the effects of sin forever. But in the meantime, it's a war. And that's why scripture is so full of commands to mortify the remaining sin in our members. What happens when we're uh, regenerated, when we're born again, is we get a new nature that, that gives us the, the power and the ability to desire righteousness, to love righteousness, and to hate sin. And yet there's still this old, I, I would call it a habitus. Uh, that's a Latin term meaning the, the agglomeration of habits that we developed when we were in bondage to sin. And it's not easy to break those habits or to rid our minds of evil desires and things like that. But when we're glorified, that will all happen. In the meantime, Scripture is very clear that it's a battle. Yeah, and, and even just the terms, right? So sinful nature, we, we think in those terms because the NIV has translated the term sarks in Romans 7 as sinful nature. It's what gets translated flesh in the NASB or in now the LSB, right? And, and flesh is a better translation, but it doesn't mean to restrict the term to our physical bodies. Flesh is the unredeemed humanness, material and immaterial, that you know, remains even after regeneration. Uh, so our, it's not just that it's the chemical processes in my brain that make my thinking sinful. It's that my mind is still warring with sin. Same with my affections and my will, right? So even these immaterial parts of me are still um, not entirely free from the presence of sin. And I just think that we, we think of the, that in those three categories, the, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin, right? And at conversion, at, at regeneration, the penalty of sin is broken because we've been justified by Christ's blood and through the imputation of his righteousness. So the penalty that we, were, that we owe, we will no longer you know, be, uh, have to pay. And that is actually a humongous incentive and liberator unto holiness. Um, and we've also, then we've also then been freed from the power of sin. The dominion of sin in our lives has been broken. Romans 6 talks about that that if we've died with Christ, we've been, we've been raised with him as we walk to newness of life. So that whereas before we were not able not to sin, now sin's power is broken such that we are able not to sin while also being able to sin because sin's presence hasn't been entirely eradicated from our experience. And so uh, we, we, we are purified, we're justified, sin is, the power of sin is broken, and yet sin remains in us, uh, and therefore we, we struggle against it. So even for a Christian, I mean, it's huge to frame it even in the right way, because if you're thinking, if we no longer have a sin nature, why do we still sin? And I sin, I feel like, well, maybe I'm not a Christian, yeah. right? Sure. I mean, the, the, uh, th there's always a, a good degree of self-examination when you say, okay, you know, this is the way the Bible says a Christian lives. This is the way that I'm living. I see a disparity there, and I'm concerned, right? But the, you know, that, that's not reason to doubt salvation, you know, in some sort of morbid way. It's a, reason, it's a, it's a, a reason to go and get assurance by considering the evidences of grace, by remembering the promises of the gospel, acting faith upon them again, remembering the times where the Spirit has testified to your spirit that you are a child of God, and reasoning. You know, Scripture says that if these things are in me, then I'm a child of God. I cannot doubt, though I maybe not, I'm not seeing it at the moment, I cannot doubt that at the least in the past, I have seen these things in me that are not native to my own constitution, and uh, therefore, I can, I can deduce that I am a child of God. The Puritans called that the practical syllogism uh, in terms of gaining assurance. And then there's the, the, what they called the mystical syllogism was the idea of I have this testimony of the Spirit to my, to my heart. Maybe it was after a time of you know, 
earnest evangelism, or maybe it was after a time of fasting and prayer, or maybe it was at a time of a particular, you know, spiritual high, you know, where the Spirit does come and testify to your spirit in, in, a, in, a, in a super sensible way, right, your mind, right? And, and you can look back on that and say, have, have, has that reality been genuinely true? It has. Well, that reality doesn't get to be true unless the Spirit's doing it. And therefore, though I'm walking in darkness at the present moment, I can look back and, and, and grab onto that assurance and fight through my doubts knowing that I am a child of God. So practical syllogism, mystical syllogism. So much for the two-minute limit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's just my sinful nature. I, I added. I, <laughs> I egged him on a little at the end. So. Um, here's another one, which, you know, all of us at Grace Church, if you've been here any amount of time, you've heard Pastor John and others talk about the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutics. This person asked, does Scripture support the use of a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic? And what help does the Bible give us for understanding how we should interpret it? Go ahead, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The short short answer is, yes, the Bible does do that. What is literal, grammatical, historical? It, It simply means that the way that you interpret communication is to consider the rules of grammar and the facts of history. And when the plain sense makes sense, you seek no other sense, right? Uh, and, and so basically it's the idea that you ought to approach the Bible as you would any other written communication. And the reason why we say that that's the way to do it is, is owing to a number of things. I mean, one, it's impossible not to do it, right? Sort of like Mortimer Adler writes a book called How to Read a Book, and you're going, wait a second, how do I begin this, right? Like if I need to read the book to know how to read the book, then what am I doing? If you need to understand the principles of interpretation to interpret how your hermeneutics ought to be, it's sort of a little bit circular. But, it, but you, you realize Hebrews 1, right? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So what is scripture? It's God speaking. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. So what's the goal of speaking to anybody? It's to be understood. And when, if you're speaking to be understood and you're not lying, deceiving, or throwing out riddles to people, right, then it's, it's plain that what you want is somebody to understand what you're saying by your own words and, and you know, the expression of your own intent. So that, that's basically what Scripture is, is saying, or what literal grammatical means, right? It means, you know, interpret it according to the intent of the author, of the speaker. Do unto authors as you would have them do unto you, right? If, if you wrote a letter sending detailed instructions as to how I was supposed to come take something from your house, like, oh, I have this old TV, you can have it if you want it, sure, I'll come get it, let me go get it, and you gave me detailed instructions, but then I show up, and I take a bunch of other things, too, and I just said, well, I'm just sort of doing spiritual interpretation, or I'm, I'm, I'm giving a, a Mike-centric uh, hermeneutic in, in my interpretation of this thing. You're going to say, hey, what's the deal? Like, uh, I gave you instructions. Oh, you, like, you meant that literally? <laughs> yes, right? So if, if you wouldn't like your words to be pilloried and twisted and reinterpreted according to the desires of the hearer, right? You should assume that neither does, neither does God uh, want that. Neither does Paul or, you know, the, the authors of Scripture want you to, to sort of play-doh their, their words. They want you to say, okay, what, what did this guy mean by what he said, and, and how can we uh, understand it in the, in the plainest way? Amen. Yeah, Scripture's not a puzzle. It's, uh, it's God's communication to us. And note that the one thing, or let's say one of the principal things Jesus uh, scolded the Pharisees for was using interpretive gymnastics to get around the clear meaning of God's word. We don't want to do that. Next. Good. Here, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why does God want us to pray for things when he, is, when he has in his sovereignty already determined what will happen? Because, because prayer is the means by which he ordained that those things would happen. Um, he wants us to ask him for things so that it keeps us aware of how providence is working. And, um, you know, so uh, th- those things are not contradictory. The idea that God has foreordained sovereignly what will happen, and yet he tells us 
ask and you shall receive, and you don't receive because you don't ask or you ask wrongly, uh, there's no contradiction there. God has ordained what will happen, uh, and our prayers are one of the means by which the things that he has ordained will come to pass. So prayer is our way of sort of plugging in to the sovereign plan of God and making sure we're in agreement with him. Yeah, I mean, God wants me to get home from church today. So why don't I just sit in my car and wait for it to take me there? Right? God ordains all things. He's sovereign over everything, even my car, even, my, even the traffic. Right? So Jesus, take the wheel. Right? Like, that's not how it goes. The means of my getting home is using an operationally functional vehicle. Um, you know, God ordains for me to get this water in my cup so I can have a drink. But there's this, but I'm just going to sit there and hold my cup under the faucet until the water comes out. Well, no, I'm going to turn the lever, right? Because there, that's the means by which the ordained ends come to pass. Prayer and evangelism is usually the other side of that question are the ordained means by which God carries out the ordained ends. All right. I'll do one more and then I'll go to Harry in the back. Um, Something that's been in all of, I don't know, popular Christianity right now, and and even some camps that we might say we are part of, um, has been this whole idea of looking at Titus 2 and the role of a woman in church and yes, we'd all say, you know, oh, it says to teach, you know, teach their children and teach other women to love their husbands. But the question then is, is it biblical for women to teach other women theology? And that's really what's going around right now, very harshly saying, no, they're not. I, I know, I've seen that. Guys. And I've responded to that on Twitter saying, I think that's the stupidest claim I ever heard. Is that clear enough? <laughs> so, All right, next question. Uh, what, uh, it's <laughs> just if you want a biblical argument, uh, I would go to Timothy, who was trained by his mother and his grandmother, and Paul commends him for that. And uh, uh, it's just a dumb idea, I think, to say, and, and there are people who are saying this, that when women teach other women, they, it should be about how to fold the clothes and, how, you know, homemaking tips. And if you would get into theology at all, you have to apply it to the role of the woman in the home. That's, that's like, I don't know what to call that. It's a kind of idiotic super uh, uh, paternalism. Uh, w- there was w- one guy, fairly prominent guy on Twitter, who posted a thing saying his wife wanted to read a book on a theological question, and he stopped her from doing it because he hadn't read the book yet, and he didn't trust her to read it without his sort of guidance and superstition and my response is, if you married a woman that stupid, then you probably, <laughs> probably deserve it. Uh, but, they, but they think that that's what First Timothy 2.14 means yes. about the, at, with the woman being deceived first, that women are just sort right. of have this natural propensity to deception. And these, their wives, this guy's wife agrees, right? Yeah. And she, she probably does, like all of us, have a natural propensity to deception. The fact that Eve was deceived and Adam sinned deliberately isn't proof. I mean, if that's proof that women are more susceptible to deception, it's also proof that men are more, are more likely to sin deliberately and egregiously. And I don't think that's Paul's point in that context, yeah. uh, especially since he commends Timothy's mother and grandmother for having trained him. Yeah, the, the, those guys are aiming at something good and they're just missing they're missing the target what are they aiming at they're aiming at the notion that the the primary source of instruction for any woman in terms of, of theology in terms of the things of the scriptures ought to be her her own husband and her elders right the you know if she desires to learn anything let, you know let them ask their own husbands at home right and then you know obviously you're submitting to the instruction of the elders let those who rule well uh, be worthy of high esteem, double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Teaching what is good, you know, uh, the, the elders are, are commanded to do that. So what they're, are, what they're trying to avoid is these perversions that come up of these woman teachers and conference speakers who it, it almost seems like, well, if women are going to learn theology at all, it's got to be from other women because the other women are the only way that we know 
how to apply. We, we speak to ourselves in just a different way and all these sorts of things. And I, and I think that is a miss because, and, and you see the fruit of that. The fruit of that is these, these women's ministries do get sort of idiosyncratic. They get isolated and then they, they start kind of veering off into bad teaching, some heresy. And then you have the, the sort of the woman acting as, the, as basically a pastor to women when women can't be pastors, right? And they can't be elders, even over other women. And so they're aiming at something that's good. But, but what, what I think what's helped me navigate this is just a careful look at Titus 2, because it says there, older women are to be teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. I think that some of these guys read that so that they, they take the so that out of there and they make a, like a, a participle of means, like this is how you're going to teach what is good, encouraging the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. But that's not what Paul says. He says you are to teach what is good and there's no restriction on what is good. What is good? It's not just the godly practice of, you know, the roles that he's laying out there. It's, it's the, the truth, the theology, the doctrine that undergirds all of the practice. So you are to teach what is good, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, so that with the purpose that on the basis of that doctrinal instruction, you might exhort unto the love of the, the husband, the love of the children, and so on. All right, I promised. Harry, what do you have? Uh, yes, um, in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And in John's study Bible, he says there that he doesn't believe it should be uppercase spirit. And how does that fit? with the following verse that it says, but he gives a greater grace. If it's uppercase, then the next verse doesn't apply. What's a greater grace than the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm asking this because the Legacy Bible also left it with uppercase. Well, I think the answer to the first question is the he, you know, would be the same he as he jealously desires the spirit. So in that phrase, he jealously desires the spirit that's referring to the father. And so it would just mean that in, in James 4, 6, but he, that is the father, gives uh, a, a greater grace. So it, it wouldn't have to mean that the he immediately is uh, the spirit of God. As to you know the translational choices, you'd probably have to ask the team. I'm going to guess that in a place where it's ambiguous like that, they're trying their, their hardest not to be innovative. They're trying to preserve the legacy of the good translation of the NAS 95. And so I think probably where there was enough ambiguity as to not be certain, they probably elected to go give the benefit of the doubt to what was, was already there. Thank you. Well, here's another one. I know probably a lot of us have unsaved family members, friends, also a lot of people I know at Grace Church have come out of Catholicism. Uh, this person asks, I've, been, I've recently been asked by my cousin to be the godfather of her daughter. I've also recently been asked by my good friends to be the godfather and witness to the baptism of their daughter. I understand that infant baptism achieves nothing in terms of spiritual salvation because infants are incapable of comprehending sin, their spiritual depravity. Am I committing sin by witnessing and participating in the Catholic tradition? I wouldn't do it. Uh, I, I don't think I would, I would... I mean, I'm not willing to sit up here and say off the cuff, yes, that would be sin. But I wouldn't do it because it is participation in a religious ritual that you don't believe is uh, warranted by Scripture or efficacious. And especially in a Roman Catholic church, it's done along with a, a corrupt approach to the gospel. So I just, I wouldn't do it. I, I, um, I don't have a lot of experience in that. I've always wanted to be a godfather. <laughs> That's ever a different since, kind of godfather. Can you do this? Can you? <laughs> yeah, ever since I saw the movie, I'm, I'm like... Yeah, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah. But Dom Philippe. Yeah. But uh, yeah, now I'm I'm pretty wary of things like that. I've only been to a Catholic mass 
one time in my life, and that was to go to the funeral of a next-door neighbor who was a Roman Catholic who died, and I didn't obviously partake in the, in the Mass, but I just attended, and one of my good friends, uh, st- still to this day, at the time he lived next door to me, was Philip de Courcy, who uh, was from Northern Ireland, and he's as ardently uh, anti-Catholic as anybody I know. And when he heard that I, I even went to a Catholic funeral, he shamed me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just, you have to be careful in that you don't want to participate in a religious ceremony. That It's one thing to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Paul says that's no big deal. But it's another thing to actively participate in a religious ritual that, that you know is not warranted by scripture. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I was going to say it's not just infant baptism as if that's practiced in the Presbyte- a conservative Presbyterian church, right? This is, this is a doctrine of baptism which is, is, it's proposed is, you know, it remedies original sin and it makes this person, you know, fits this person for heaven that, the, the, the in, that it is an instrument of justifying grace which is contrary to Galatians. You know what I mean? Like that's the entire, just replace circumcision with baptism and you have the Galatian heresy. So I would say you're sinning. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's, if it's a, you know, like, I don't know if it's just like a, you know, the, like Phil, right? Like Philip de Corsi, the, the more you see, you know, the, the destruction and, the, and the, the, the spiritual harm that it does, the more sensitive you are. Maybe that's, Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing, right? Maybe that biases you in the right direction. Maybe it biases you in the wrong direction. But for me, I would just say that that is common spiritual cause with Belial. You are bringing, you, you are attempting to worship Yahweh in the temple of Belial. And I just think that that is, uh, that's not, as Second Corinthians 6 says, no. Yeah, I wouldn't argue against that. The only thing about it that would appeal to me is that if they do it like they did in the Godfather movie, the priest says, do you renounce Satan? And you get to say, I do renounce him. We can, we can, we can set that up for you after the <laughs> service. Right. Okay. We can just All do right. that here. For the parent dedication, that could be a new thing that night. <laughs> that John adds that at the end. Great if we I'm for it. Do it in Latin, too. All right. And all his works. <laughs> okay. Um... One more, and then we'll go in the back, because I promise we're going to get through these. Um, This one, and I I know, Mike, you're going to get to this when you get back to your series, and you've talked about husband's roles, and the man, the husband as the leader of of his wife, of his house, and things like that. Uh, This one comes, and I I think we could kind of look at it two different ways. Um, This person says, how can a husband lead his wife? when she refuses to be led and avoids direct accountability and counseling. And I think we could obviously flip that the other way as well, too, when how does a a wife um, go to her husband, you know, with her concerns and things like that, and he doesn't want to seek godly advice and counsel and things, too. How would you... Yeah, I mean, I think that there's always a desire to protect the reputation of our of our spouse, and so when the when the one is being obstinate and is is unwilling to involve another Christian or Christian leader in, you know, the the those affairs, you know, the instinct is to say, okay, I, I don't want to go and sort of tell on you. I don't want to bring shame upon your reputation in a need, in a needless way. And sadly, that people suffer in silence and isolation. Right away, I'm thinking of Proverbs 18. I think it's, it's either one or two, but it's, you know, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. So, you know, sin loves the darkness, right? The, the one who is sinning does not come into the light, John 3 says, because he, he, he knows it's, his deeds are evil. He doesn't want them to be exposed. But the one whose deeds are wrought in God comes into the light so that it be, may, may be manifested that his deeds are wrought by God. So the sin, sin survives in the dark. And when there's light thrown upon it, you know, it, 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 that's, that's really aiming, taking aim at sin and exposing it and, and leaving it open for mortification. So I would just say, first of all, no Christian has any excuse when they've been confronted by another Christian and they disagree with the confrontation. 
when that, when that confronter says to them, okay, I've gone to you with my concerns. You haven't received them. I'd like to involve another person. They, no Christian has any warrant whatsoever to refuse that. None, right? Like they could, you could appeal. You could say, well, is this the best way to go? Okay, let me hear you again, right? You know, that's fine. But to the notion that, no, I will not come in for a meeting, that, that just can't be in the church of God. Uh, that, that is a refusal of biblical authority. It's an outright disobedience of Matthew 18, 15 to 18, the steps of, of church discipline. And the only way you'd ever be able to defend that is to say, I don't want my sin exposed. And you only don't want your sin exposed if you want to keep sinning. So, right, Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts, right? Well, making a provision for the flesh would be refusing the, you know, the, the lovingly confrontative meetings of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are bringing sin to my attention. I really want to, I just really want to underscore that. If somebody says, hey, we, we need to meet, we have a concern, you have to say yes. <laughs> you know, you can't sit there and say, or, or, or you have to go to a church uh, under elders whom you trust to arrange those meetings. It's fine for you to say, I'm sorry, I've lost confidence in you as elders of, of Grace Church or as leaders of Grace Church because of the way that you've handled these situations. That's fine. You're free, so long as you're not under discipline, to transfer your membership anywhere you'd like. But there have to be elders that you, you are obeying and submitting to, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, because that is what is profitable for you, because your greatest profit is to have your sin rooted out, exposed, rooted out, and have you repent of it. Nobody's trying to shame you. Nobody's trying to discipline you out, excommunicate you, make a, a display of you. They're, they're, they're trying to love you by severing, you, you know, your, your ties with your own sin. So I wanted to say that. Yeah, and the same thing is true if, uh, suppose, suppose you feel the accusations that are being made against you are false. Right. Uh, and, and all you still don't refuse the meeting. Just make sure that the second witness who is there is a truly impartial person because that, that, that's also, uh, the, the system is set up so that if, if you're not guilty of sin, uh, you'll be vindicated by that. Absolutely. So. It's as much, it's, it's the cause of justice in either direction. It's not setting up you up to be railroaded. It's setting you up to be served by having you sever with your sin or vindicated by showing, actually, this was uh, an illegitimate concern. So somebody says, I have this problem with my husband or with my wife, and, so I, and I've presented it, they don't agree, but now they won't let me bring somebody else along. Well, no, bringing somebody else along is not just for proving that you really are wrong. It's also for maybe saying to the person who was accusing you, actually, you need to back off. This is not so. Yeah, I think that's one of the best protections we can have even for our wives and things is to be under an eldership that we trust and that knows the right thing to do that even that protects her and, and has her come under. So that's good. All right, good. All right, we will go in the back now. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, my question is, what is your guys' stance on how much involvement we're to have in politics? And if it's good to be watching the news regularly, thinking about evil things and people in this world, uh, there's a lot of people, like believers that I see, spending a lot of time watching the news. They find themselves stressed and seemingly hopeless about the world situation. Situation. Um, I know that we ought to care about the situations taking place in the world and praying about it, uh, but I'd like to know what you think. So, number one, stance on involvement in politics, and second question is, is it good to watch the news regularly? Yeah, those are, those are good questions, and I'm glad you're asking them. Um, before I was saved, I was into politics in a big way. I mean, that was my, my life goals were to be involved in politics, not as a politician, but as a critic, a commentator. And, and um, I was really into it. But the, the passage of Scripture that convicted me uh, includes that text where Paul says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And uh, in, as I pondered what that means, I realized... The, that if there's anything that represents the wisdom of this world and foolishness, it's politics. And you can see that more and more clearly all the time as politicians throw off their regard for what's true and what's right and what's righteous. And uh, it's an ugly business. 
So, nevertheless, my, my counsel even 20 years ago, I think, would have been, yeah, as a Christian, I don't think you need to be up to your ears in politics. The problem in America is that political issue, what used to be political issues, dealing with the economy and stuff like that, it's moved more and more into the moral realm. So what our politicians are dealing with now, uh, in a lot of cases, like you know, gay rights and divorce and many of these issues, uh, have a direct answer in Scripture. And so they are things that we as Christians have to be concerned about. I don't see how you can live in this world and not be somewhat concerned with what's going on in the political realm. But I, I would still hold to this. The answer to everything that ails our culture is not a political solution. You can't, by voting in any, any candidate, fix what's wrong with our culture. Uh, and I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I think you should, and I think you should vote for the best candidate. But if your hope lies there, if you think that if we can just get this guy elected, that's going to fix what's wrong with America, then your thinking is off track as a Christian. Because what we know as believers is that the solution to everything that ails our culture is not political. You, you couldn't pass enough legislation to make our culture righteous. Uh, and in fact, Paul says if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He's talking, of course, about Moses' law in the Old Testament. But the same principle applies to uh, America today. You can't, you can't use legal means to make an unrighteous society righteous because the problem lies in the hearts of people who have given themselves over to sin and have been given over by God to the sin that they love, Romans 1. Uh, so we're living under a, a curse, and as Christians, we need to understand that and realize that the only ultimate solution to what ails our culture is the gospel. And, and I have, I've long said this, and I still think it's true, that Christians... Uh, collectively should put more energy into proclaiming the gospel clearly and maybe a little less energy into trying to get this or that candidate elected. And it seems to me that things are becoming more and more heated politically among evangelicals now with the rise of people who proudly proclaim themselves Christian nationalists. Uh, what they're saying is they think a, a government uh, you know, that's established according to biblical principles would resolve what's wrong with our society. And I just, I think it's pretty clear from Scripture that's not the case until Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. Now, I'd be accused by a lot of people of being a defeatist for that. You're just giving up on the political, uh, the political system. Well, I've never had any hope that the political system could fix what's wrong. So I'm not giving up anything, uh, but I'm more determined than ever, I hope, to proclaim the gospel and make clear what the real answer to the human dilemma is. It's not politics. And, and regarding the news, I mean, I think, I think that that stems from a desire to be informed on the issues, right? But the news doesn't inform you, right? They, they, they propagandize. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, people have said it, you know, if you, watch, if you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. If you do watch the news, you're misinformed. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's never been true, truer in this country uh, than it is today. So I would, I would say turn the news off, man. Um, you know, yes, you need to be aware of the issues, but that's actually not going to help you. You need to be able to impact society in the ways that God has given to you as a citizen of the state, which is to say you, know, you, you, vote, for, you vote for righteous policies, you, know, you, you, you support whatever... As opposed, as opposed to the unrighteous ones, or as opposed to just being totally aloof, right? But that, that is your involvement as an inhabitant of the state, right? You're also an inhabitant of the church, and, and that is the sphere in which, you know, lasting change takes place. And, and I think a lot of times people's infatuation with the political process comes from being dissatisfied at the pace at which, you know, the, the church sees people converted and changed and discipled and living in a way that's, that's godly. Well, if God's, if God's plan is that, the, that his people be a remnant, right, that, that things, that evil men proceed from bad to worse, that if, if the, the course of this world is getting more and more evil and less godly until Christ the King comes and, you know, overturns everything, <clears throat> destroys his enemies and sets up his kingdom, 
well, well then, you know, we're, you're setting yourself up for disappointment to think, well, we're going to be able to, to change these things, you know, politically or, or anything like that. We're to be an outpost of the kingdom and, and expect that we'll be in the minority until uh, Jesus returns. And if we're not, if by God's grace we, you know, there's another third great awakening and, you know, we're able to, you know, go into and start our own country, all right, well, we should do that according to biblical principles. But the reality is where we are now, we, we're to be salt and light, we're to be, you know, an outpost of heaven and to, to preach and die. Yeah, by the way, I have a whole sermon you'll find online about that verse in Matthew 5 about being salt and light. That's not a mandate to be politically active. Uh, so, Jesus, in fact, it's not even a command. Jesus doesn't say be salt and light. He says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, meaning you, 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 you let your light shine. That's not talking about becoming active as a, a political agitator or whatever. And by the way, I watch the news. I just don't take it seriously. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, kind of staying a little bit current events. Uh, someone asked, with unemployment and living costs rising so quickly, the current Hollywood strikes putting acquaintances out of work for a long time. I'm wondering how to respond to desperate friends and relatives who turn to us for help. And then he kind of goes on. How do Christians with limited but some means help friends and neighbors when there was when there's so much need. And then he even talks about today with homelessness everywhere. How should we respond when desperate people ask us for help? That's a huge question because my answer might be different for the random homeless guy who's uh, living on the street by choice because he wants to, you know, just live a life high on drugs. And my response to him would be far different than it would be for a needy person who's lost his job because of the writer's strike or whatever. Um, I think you have to evaluate each situation uh, individually, but scripture's pretty clear. If you see a brother in need and you have the means to help him and you don't, that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, I I think in in priorities, so uh, I think it's, you know, you talk about like of meager means or of limited means, right? That's the case. You know, the, the ultimate answer to that is according to your, the stewardship of what God has blessed you with and according to your exercise of Christian liberty, right? You have the freedom to do with what is yours what you please uh, according to biblical principles and according to the measure that you've been blessed with. So I think of a couple of verses, right? So Galatians 6.10, so then while we have opportunity, so there, there it is again, what, God, what has God entrusted you, trusted you with, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So doing good to a brother in Christ takes precedence over doing good to, uh, you know, somebody who might be your blood brother, but who is un- an unbeliever or a random person on the street or whatever, number one. Then I think of First Timothy 5, where we're told that if anyone doesn't provide for his own, in the context here, I mean, it says, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if you have you know, dependents living under your roof, your children, right, you, you are responsible to take care of them. If you have aging parents and things like that, you, know, you are responsible to take care of them. If you don't do that, you are worse than an unbeliever. That's an exceptional, an exceptional denunciation. So um, are there ties in family, right? You know, who do I have responsibility for? And then 5.17 in First Timothy the elders who rule well are can be to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so I think there are other, those are also priorities. So I am to give to God out of the first fruits of my increase, right? So giving to the work of the church, which goes to the sustenance of those who labor at preaching and teaching are so worthy of double honor. So am I, am I supporting my church? faithfully? Am I taking care of the needs of my own family? That might actually come first, right? Although, you know, God is first above everything, but, you know, am I taking care of my own family? And then, you know, let us do good to all men as we have opportunity, especially to those who have the household of faith. So, So after those priorities are taken care of and you have stuff left over, if you have sustenance left over, you can distribute that according to your conscience, right? Um, but, in, in that order of those priorities. And it's not always, and then what should your conscience be informed by? Well, you want to do good. You don't want just to, 
um, make a show of goodness, a pre- pretense of goodness. You don't want just a virtue signal. You actually want to do good. You want to have the effect of benefit in the person's life. And, and, and it may be that giving somebody you know, $5 at the off-ramp on you know, the 170 on Tarasco does good to that person, but it may not do good to that person. It may sustain or enable an addiction. It may um, re- you know, enable indolence and refusal to go get a job and things like that. Far better to say, hey, you want, you want lunch? And go take him to Subway or whatever and, and get to know him, hear his story, and find out what, how he's gotten in the situation that he's gotten to, and then make a decision. Is this somebody you know, who I could actually do good to by giving resources to. We'll take one in the back, yeah. Hi, good morning. My question is this. What is your take on the Catholic Church's practice of refusing to assert communion to those in power and authority who take an anti-biblical view on controversial issues? If Satan doesn't want to let people engage in his worship, I'm okay with it. But I assume that you're asking, you know, practiced in an evangelical context, should, should we, as the true church, you know, withhold the ordinance of communion to those who are, out, you know, out of accord with the doctrine of, of the gospel? Yes. Yes. Um, but we don't fence the table. Right, meaning we don't, we don't use any uh, means to uh, examine people. In a church this size, it would be pretty hard to examine everyone before you serve communion to them. But we do typically, at least when, when I'm up there leading communion, I always make a big deal out of the fact that you need to examine yourself. And uh, if you're not a believer or if you have unrepentant sin, uh, you need to repent before you partake in this ordinance. Um, so we always stress that, I think, uh, but we don't, we don't actively try to tell people whether they can or can't. Now, yeah. I've preached occasionally in um, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and there you have to actually be interviewed by an elder and given a ticket before you can partake in the Lord's table. Like a now serving 171 kind of thing? <laughs> it's, it's the same size and shape, but... It, <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I think in, in general, right, communion, so for one thing, in the Catholic Church, again, com- the Mass c- conveys grace, this is transubstantiation, there's now you're actually ingesting the body and blood of Christ, and this is how you're sustained in in grace and justifying grace, so there's just a whole host of anti-gospel realities in the Catholic Mass that just don't map one-to-one, so like I say, if Satan doesn't want to let people attend his worship, I'm not going to argue with him, but as for us, I mean, yeah, communion is uh, the, the time for the family of God to remember their Lord's death and proclaim that death until he comes. And that should be done, I think, therefore, after the initiatory ordinance of baptism. So if you've not been baptized as a believer, uh, you ought not to partake in communion until you, you do that. Now, that's not saying stop taking communion. That's saying get baptized, right? Um, then, you know, to be baptized at, at this church, right, you will have had to have an interview with um, an elder to make sure that, that you give a credible profession of faith, that your testimony is one that accords with the biblical gospel. And we, now we don't keep track of that. Excuse me, are you baptized? No, right? We, we leave that to the conscience of, of each one and try to give directions. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it, there, there are practical considerations and things like that, but I think there's also just um, a hesitance to become the Lord's, right? The, the, we don't want to be heavy-handed in acting as your conscience. We want to inform your conscience and call you to a, a responsible decision. Yeah, and I don't want to leave the wrong impression. We're not totally passive about it. If, if it came to light that you were engaged in some kind of unrepentant sin and you were confronted and uh, then confronted by two witnesses and your name would be read at one of our communion services and if you still didn't repent, you'd be excommunicated. And that's what that term means excommunicated, you would, be, you would be excluded from the Lord's table, communion. You bet. All right, a couple more. If, uh, we might have time for one or two more in the back because I just have like two more questions. So we, if you do want to pop up and ask a question, you might have a little time here. Um, this person said, 
and, and I know a lot has lately, you know, we've all been viewing the Essential Church movie and those thoughts have come up again relating to COVID and the shutdowns and everything. This person said, during COVID, many church leaders heaped legalistic burdens by enforcing government mandates despite differing consciences among their congregation. Most of this day have yet to admit wrong or apologize. Simply, Some simply do not believe that these mandates were conscience issues. Some believe they wield the authority to enforce those mandates that are not found in Scripture. How do we appropriately assess these church leaders who have not apologized or admitted wrongdoing but affirm and preach the gospel? Then they said, even on the other hand, Christianity Today has admitted wrong, yet they seem to lack evidence of genuine repentance, uh, you know, for the horrible discrimination they've treated others who dissented from the main narrative. How would, how would you, one, respond to their request for forgiveness? So two, two sides of the coin there. Have you thought about this in light of, like, the Donatist controversy? Like the uh, lapsy? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a definite connection there. Like, how, how, how long do you hold against someone the idea that they were wrong on an issue like that, particularly if they haven't made any kind of public repentance or whatever? Uh, I would go to Philippians where Paul says, you know, people were preaching the gospel supposing to even add, you know, grief to his imprisonment. Uh, and yet he said he rejoiced that the gospel was being preached. I, f- I feel similar about this, that there were people, even people who prior to the COVID crisis, we would have considered close allies in the gospel, who turned against John MacArthur, Grace Church, and those of us who said, I don't know, we need to meet together and have church, uh, and publicly criticized the decision that we made and the way we went and uh, as the question asked, it's like, you know, tying heavy burdens that Scripture doesn't tie on us. It was wrong, and I think it was clearly wrong, and I think our stance has been vindicated in time, and yet most of those who were a problem haven't, haven't really said anything to retract what they wrote at the time. They, I think they'd like for the whole issue just to be forgotten and go away. And so uh, just speaking personally, I've lost a lot of respect for some of those people, would I excommunicate them or or refuse to have any further fellowship with them? No, I wouldn't. I, I rejoice that they do preach the gospel, and um, I, I don't think there's anything to be gained by making an issue of COVID every time every time we interact with those people. So I, I try not to do that. Though, if you follow my Twitter feed, I, I do occasionally sort of hold up the evidence that uh, you guys were wrong about this. Maybe you shouldn't be so dogmatic about everything. Yeah. I agree. I, I either could add very little or, or probably too much. Um, <laughs> but I, I just think that that's, that's I, sound. I, I don't love know. it when you go on and on. How intractable do you, I mean, like, how intractable do you want to be? I think that we, we're all called to be intreatable in view of our own sins. If, if I made a mistake, or if I, I mean, if I sinned against you, and... Uh, if I've made a, a public wrong decision or whatever, and, and I don't, in that moment, I'm not being given the grace to own it and to really repent of it and to make the, make the amends and the reconciliation that Scripture commands me to make, right? I'm sinning in that failure. I really am. But what, but what, do, what do I need? I suppose I, I suppose I do need somebody to say, hey, you know, that's still there, and I think that that's done in, in, a, in an appropriate way. But I also would appreciate, you know, um, the graciousness to say we're just we'll let we'll let that we'll let that go. I made reference at the beginning there to the Donatist controversy in the in the four hundreds, which is you know a, a time where it was the four hundreds of the fourth century, so three hundreds. I forget, but I, it was the it was the kind of thing where in the early church there were uh, there were a lot of persecutions, and you know when a different emperor would come, you know there would be differing. Uh, attitudes toward Christianity, and, and um, at, at some point, there were a great deal of Christians who were being persecuted into making certain confessions that would go against the gospel, right? And, and so, it was a great grief to genuine believers at the time, but then, you know, after the, the harsh leadership transitioned and more lenient leadership came into power, the question was, well, what do we do with these people who sort of denied 
their Christianity in the midst of severe persecution. They were called the lapsy, the lapsed, those who fell away, but who are now sort of back saying, hey, can we, can we kind of forget about that? And um, you know, th- there, were, there were some, the Donatists were those who wanted to really put the screws to the lapsy and say, you know, no, you, know, you denied Christ, you're not to be admitted uh, to the church again. Uh, that's, you know, you're Peter denying Christ. I mean, that's just horrific. And it was actually Augustine who was one of the greatest, greatest proponents of ad- readmitting the lapsi into, you know, the fellowship of the church. And, you know, frankly, I, I wish my church history was a little bit fresher so that I could explain all of his reasoning for that. But it's just interesting that the hero of the faith would, was, a, was a bit less severe. And I think, I think it was Augustine's doctrine of grace that did it. Uh, not, let's just be kind to everybody. Why can't we all just get along? But I think he was so confronted with the reality of his own depravity that he understands when sin gets a hold on somebody. And what you look for is that acknowledgement of, I'm sorry, we wanna, I want to I wanna come back. And even if they don't grovel in all of the appropriate ways, we want to be intreatable people and, and receive them where we, where we find good fruit. Yeah, if the example is Peter, and, and it is, you have to go all the way with it and realize that Christ not only forgave him, and it was Christ who made the overture to forgive, but he also put him in a position of leadership in the church. So, yeah, I'm, I understand the resentment to, to people who were wrong on that issue and won't admit it even to this day, but I don't think that's a war we need to prolong. And, and just take care how influenced by cancel culture you are, right? I think that there's just this, this prevailing sense in the, in the world at the moment that, you know, somebody says something that's out of accord with secular orthodoxy and that's it. You know, lose his job, you know, family, you know, cancel him, don't hear him, you know, he's, he's, he's gone. And unless he comes back and makes this, you know, overwrought apology, I, I understand that my comments may have been insensitive to certain groups and I want to, right? Like you just, we hear this every week, there's somebody making some kind of, you know, penance, shibboleth, you know, confession to the secular orthodoxy that, well, I, I shouldn't have said that thing about kids not being able to make the choice to mutilate themselves, right? That happened with the, the rapper Neo in the last couple of weeks. I'm uh, sure that all of you are very aware of Neo and his career. Um, but, you know, that, that happens all the time. And I, think that, and I think that, you know, that level of intractableness, that level of a fierce insistence upon justice when we owe our lives to graces overcoming of the just penalty of our sins is out of place in the church, right? Somebody does something wrong, ah, consign him to the dark corners of my heart and let him interact with only other people. I don't want to have anything to do with him. That's not life in the body of Christ, right? That's, uh, you know, th- that's throwing somebody into the debtor's prison of your heart. And I preached on that in the, in the parable of the unforgiving slave from Matthew 18, you know, back at the beginning of the year. So we just want to be easy people, I think. Was Neo the one who retracted his retraction? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, retracted the publicist. Right, he said it was the publicist who wrote the retraction for him. He wasn't really sorry. (laughs) I don't know who he is, but I like that. Yeah. Yeah. He's now my favorite rapper. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't say that because I don't know what what he says. Mike Riccardi is my favorite rapper. (laughs) I was going to bring it up, but I... (laughs) I was trying not to. They don't know this. Don't, they just don't. <laughs> One day it will be revealed. Oh, brother. <laughs> yes, in the back. It's a, a difficult question to formulate, but it has to do with the, uh, the whole concept of law versus grace. I think one of the more difficult things I had as a young believer was understanding what does it mean that we're not under the law anymore? And there were a lot of people that they say, well, don't read the Old Testament because that's all law. And, I, and then... Obviously, that was wrong, but they, they needed a key. Well, if I'm reading the Old Testament, I'm trying to discern. It's obvious the ceremonial law uh, is, is gone, and a lot of, but Mosaic law has a lot of mixture of, of eternal truth, uh, at least earthly truth, and that which is, has, has passed away. What would you offer as a key if you're reading the Old Testament? Here's how you do this so that you're properly under 
the law of Christ yeah. and you're not putting yourself under the Yeah, that's law a great question. And, you know, there are lots of people who would say, I, I reject, Mike even may be one of them, uh, <laughs> who says, I reject the threefold division of the law because there's no text in Scripture that divides Moses' law into civil, ceremonial, and moral, and that's true. Um, my answer to that would be, yeah, it, there, there, is, there is a lot of gray in making that, well, there is some gray in making that decision, but it seems to me Christ himself expected the Pharisees to see the difference between a gnat and a camel, right? He scolded them for, you know, swallowing a camel while they strained out their gnats. And he, he was talking there about different categories of legal principles that, you know, they, they ignored the major moral issues in the law in order to count out their seeds and tithe properly. And he was saying that that idea that you have to even count the mustard seeds so that you can be exact in your tithe, that that was what he meant as straining out a gnat. But then they, they used the Corbin Law, for example, to avoid showing honor to their parents. That's a huge moral issue that they just erased by clever reinterpretation. And I think... To a certain degree, God expects us to see that there is a clear difference between some of the ceremonial aspects of the law, the detailed ceremonies that were required, which were symbolic of Christ, and therefore those things have been done away. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear that many of those things no longer apply because Christ was the fulfillment of it, and therefore you don't, you don't keep going back to the symbols but the command, thou shalt not kill, that's not a ceremonial command that, that will pass away. That's a, obviously a moral statute that is rooted in the very character of God. And that's true of the Ten Commandments in general. Uh, the one that gives anybody trouble is the Sabbath commandment because it has attached to it some ceremonial restrictions. Do those apply and so on? I have a, a whole message on that as well. Uh, but so to answer your question, I, I think... You, for the most part, we don't need a proof text to show us that there is a difference between the ceremonial statutes of Moses' law and the, the ones that are grounded in morality that is derived from the very essence of God. So common sense is, is the best way to do that. And there, there will be questions. There will be certain aspects of the Old Testament law that you ask how much of that applies or does it apply or how does it apply, the Sabbath being the classic example that's probably generated more debate than any other. Uh, but for the most part, it's not, it's not really unclear. Yeah, so. and, and there, you can ask questions about that, about the New Testament as well, right? Like, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss or, you know, uh, it's a disgrace for a woman to prophesy with her head un- uncovered or... Even just, you know, and I remember when I was preaching 2 Corinthians, how situated that letter is to the context in, in which Paul was, where he's between the second and third visit uh, to Corinth in the midst of a, a mutiny due to false apostles. And, and you get texts just like, in this confidence I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Right, like... What's my application, Paul? Like, whenever I'm journeying to Macedonia, I'll be sure to refer to these. No, like, that's not the way we read the Bible. We, we recognize that the, none of the Bible is written to us, right? We are not the addressee of any letter of Scripture. We, but all the Bible is written for us. And so what we always have to do is recognize that there was an original author and an original audience and a, and a point that the author was trying to make to that audience given the, the, con, the, the context and the historical circumstances. And so what we're doing is we're trying to isolate the text's intent for the, the people of God to whom it was written, identify a timeless truth that's in that text, and then ask, okay, how, do, how does that timeless truth apply to me, I who live in a different time, in a different place, perhaps under a different covenant, right, uh, than, than this group of people? And, and so that's just, it's what's called principalizing the text, right? The, Walter Kaiser made a, a, a big deal about that in, in Toward an Exegetical Theology, the idea of, of seeking principles that 
uh, are drawn from a contextual reading, right, that are not just wildly fanciful and like, ah, um, I mean, like the example that I was having, right, is, is Leviticus nineteen eighteen. you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am Yahweh. Jesus finds that to be very abidingly, you know, uh, you know binding, applicable, and, and yet the next verse is, you are to keep my statutes, you shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Right? You have no indication in the text whatsoever that we're switching from one kind of law to the other, they just show up. And I think what Phil's saying is, it is somewhat obvious, right, as to how you, you apply verse 18 uh, to yourself, especially given the emphasis that it's given in the New Testament, and how you're to apply uh, verse 19, right? I mean, is this 100% wool? I don't know. Am I, am I in disobedience? Well, well, no, I recognize. Hebrews 8.13 talks about the first covenant being made obsolete because he says a new covenant, and therefore there's a law enforced today that wasn't enforced then. But is there, what am I to learn? What am I to learn from Leviticus 19.19? 19? Well, certainly that God has absolute lordship over every area of my life, that the way that I would breed cattle if I bred them or, you know, made clothes or whatever else, it, it, that, that God has something to say about every aspect of my life, and I am to seek the explicit commands uh, that are in force in the present age as to how I conduct myself through all of that. But again, I mean, even in a, in a new covenant context, why don't women cover their heads in contemporary worship? Is it because... Uh, that's just cultural or whatever. No, that's not our conviction why it doesn't happen, but we don't, and we don't enforce it. What does, that, what does that require us to do? Who's the original author? Who's the original audience? What's the context? What are the differences between my context and, and theirs? Is that a principle of enduring, perpetual, uh, um, binding authority, or is it an application of a principle that might apply to me differently, though the principle remains the application might apply to me differently today? It's just the, that's the hermeneutical process. Identify the, the text's intent, identify the timeless truth, seek a contextual application. And since we're already two minutes over on that answer, <laughs> let me further break my own rule, because I, I want to address that expression, you're not under the law. Scripture says that in a number of places, not under the law, but under grace. That doesn't mean that, the, that there's no way, no sense in which the Old Testament law doesn't apply to us. We know that because in Ephesians, uh, the Apostle Paul refers to the Ten Commandments when he says, children, obey your parents. This is the first commandment with a promise attached to it. And so he clearly sees that as still in force as governing the behavior of children. He treats it that way. It's the same Apostle Paul who says, you're not under the law. So what does he mean when he says, you're not under the law? I think that question is clearly answered in the book of Galatians, where you find two parallel passages, one in Galatians 4, the other in Galatians 5. I don't remember the exact verses. But in one, he, he addresses the people he's writing to as, you who desire to be under the law. And then in the very next chapter, he addresses the same people. This time he says, you who desire to be justified by the law. And I think that pair of verses explains what he means when he says, you're not under the law. He's saying, you're not trying to be justified before God by your obedience to the law. You're not under the law, you're under grace. Your hope for salvation doesn't lie in your obedience to the law. Your only hope for salvation lies in grace. And as believers, we understand that. But it doesn't mean we cast off the shackles of all moral restraint. And whenever you hear somebody quote that verse, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace, as, a, as, as if it gives him permission now to live according to the flesh, uh, he's totally twisted scripture. So when it says we're not under the law, it means we're not trying to justify ourselves before God by our, our obedience to the law. But it doesn't mean we just go ahead and disobey the law. Yeah. The law, I mean, some people put it this way, right? The, the law is not for us a covenant of works whereby we would, by our own obedience to it, earn right, earn righteousness and for eternal life. But it is an abiding rule of life. It's a guide of conduct for the Christian. And even in 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul, Paul refers to himself, he's, you know, he says, I, I became all things to all men, right? The Jews, I became a Jew. Those who were, as to, to those who were under the law, I became as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, I, 
submit to these you know, stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant so as not to be an undue stumbling block to those who are still under it and are, and are sort of weak in conscience about it. But then, then he says, to those who are without law, right, would be the Gentiles, I became as one without law, though not being without the law of God, but I am under the law of Christ. So even Paul, who says you are not under law, but under grace, is willing to say, I am not without law. I am not lawless. I am not antinomian, right? Good question. All right. Well, very good, guys. Are we Pretty done? Pretty much right on time. So uh, thank you all. Thank you, Phil and Mike. Uh, we just appreciate them. So, yeah, you can give them a round of applause. And let me just close this with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning uh, that we can come together. Lord, it just, again, just reaffirms in our minds that uh, everything we need for life and godliness is found in your word. Thank you for leaving us instruction, clear instruction. Thank you for godly men uh, who help to interpret it for us even and, and help us to practically apply it to our lives. And now, Lord, help us to be doers who go forth and, and uh, do uh, what we've even heard today. So thank you, Lord, for, for these men. Thank you for our fellowship here. And, Lord, I just pray that you'd bless the rest of our worship this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.